The following is a conversation between F. Warren McFarlane, a professor at Harvard Business School and author of Effective Fundraising, The Trustee's Role and Beyond, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. Social enterprise organizations have played a vibrant and important role in America for more than a century. And yet, the business of fundraising has not become any easier or more elegant. So my next guest has created a blueprint to help provide a sustainable revenue model for nonprofit organizations so they can best fulfill their missions. He is F. Warren McFarlane, the author of Effective Fundraising, The Trustees Role and Beyond. Welcome to the Business of Giving, Warren. Delighted to be with you this morning. You know, the book is about the trustees' role in securing the necessary financial resources for the organization. But to create some context here, this is just one of three key roles of a trustee that you outlined in your previous book, Joining a Nonprofit Board, What You Need to Know. What are those other two roles, Warren? I think the, the other two roles are first the helping to work with management to define and evolve the mission of the organization, which is critical. And then the second one is basically the selection, coaching, and evaluation of the chief executive officer. Those mm-hmm. are very similar roles at the, the for-profit world, but what of course differentiates a nonprofit is this then need to really focus on securing the financial resources. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been a lot of other books written on fundraising. What is unique about this one and what contribution do you, th- you hope it will make to the field? I think the thing that's mm-hmm. unique about this one is that it, it focuses right on the governance function and basically points out that the most important committee on the board in relation to development is not the development committee, but is in fact the governance committee. And it is the governance committee that mm-hmm. while balancing off the other two items, helps to secure the kinds of individuals who are able to move the organization forward. And we talk about it as two quite different kinds of individuals. The first are the people who are able to go out and with their own personal financial resources, be able to set examples and help move the organization forward. And the second equally important are the connectors. You know, people who have broad access to families, individuals, and so forth, and can help set up the meetings and facilitate, you know, the interactions with the organizations, your know, management and potential donors. So what you're saying is that not everyone on the board has to have the means to make a big gift themselves. They either need to be able to do that and more, or at least they need to be connected that they can bring other people to the table and secure funding in that way. And I would say that, that, again, I would say that covers the majority of the board. There are there are legitimate reasons for wanting to have people who aren't development-oriented on the board, and I expect that they basically will support the, the organization in, in, in this area. Right. Uh, a lot of times it's going to be people from the community that you're serving who exactly. might not have, but have an insight and, and an expertise and lived experience that can really be instrumental. What have you found to be the biggest misconception that trustees have about their role related to the fundraising for the organization? The number one trustee is right right when they come on the board. It's almost always the first question is, Warren, I'm just thrilled to be a part of this organization. You don't expect me to ask people for money, do you? The answer to that question is, we're thrilled to have you. And yes, we do expect you to be able to do it. And that basically the job is to, oh, you need to sort of reframe it because the, the people who are are difficult about this, think about it as uh, as as begging. And I don't view it that way at all. 
as I view it, that the trustee is giving other people opportunities to develop, to contribute to the development of an organization, which they may not have time to spend their whole life in, but whose cause it really you know, believes. And what that means is the first thing the trustee has to do is to internalize that mission and be able to make a pledge consistent with their resources such that they really take it you know, seriously. And you know, with that, they are then able to go out and ask people uh, to help build something important for the community. And that that, sh that mind shift is, is, is really an important one. Yeah, sometimes it's easier said than done because it's really tough um, to get people to go out there and ask for money very often. A couple of things on what you said. Number one, I have found a lot of CEOs who say we are thrilled to have you on the board and know you don't have to ask for money because they believe over time that that person will come around. They're so desperate to get a yes of somebody joining the board that they back off at that critical moment. And I think to your point is you really got to lay it down and, and say it straight at the very beginning because it's hard to circle back again when you've had those conditions laid out. It's also very important that, that I, I view this as really very much a process of lifelong engagement. I see trusted, I see somebody being a trustee for a period of time. They are, in fact, a donor for hopefully the rest of their life. And that, you know, one of the things I spent a lot of time on is as people finish their service and try as a trustee, helping to find other ways where they can be engaged with the organization. It may be as a board member of a board of advisors. It may staying on as being be a part of one of the major committees of the board. It may be working on a special you know, search process, but that I've just working through a couple of cases recently where people who were off the board 12 to 20 years suddenly produced uh, multi-million dollar you know, gifts from the organization, several cases, uh, quite out of the blue. They weren't being anticipated. So I, I view that I'm a trustee for a while, but I am hopefully buying into an organization for, for the real long term. Yeah, yeah. And, and that is really incumbent upon the organization because too many of them, I think, when a board member leaves, they tend to forget them. And nurturing that relation for the long term uh, yes. is not only the right thing to do, it's also really the smart thing to do. Yeah. What about a board member who might be up for asking, but just can't get that specific number out of their mouth? You know, it, probably the hardest thing is like ask them for a number. What, 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 what do you advise? How do you encourage people to to put a number out there on the table and have people react to it. I think the basic point is that it's it requires just a little bit of chutzpah, but you've never, in fact, can insult somebody by asking them for too much money. <laughs> that, uh, a number of my friends are much relieved if I underask. They say, we thought you were going to really go for something more. Let me give you the check right now and let me get out of here. But the, the so the real point is to sort of basically start the dialogue and it helps a great deal if you've basically, I mean, very, very often that uh, the organizations I'm raising for, I will basically say this is, you know, basically what my wife and I have done. We really believe in this and that we hope that we'll be able to think about it in the same um, you know, kind of, of a way. And there it really depends on the individual, the nature of the relationship. I had a, uh, I was a hospital board chairman earlier in my, in my career, and I'm heading up a hospital, you know, campaign now. And that I picked up one of my successors, who was uh, board chair, you know, 13 years ago, and that he just become kind of 
does the, the hospital lost track of him and so forth. And that we got him back to come to a cultivation event at a Red Sox game. And that I then had seen him in six, seven years. And you know, took him out to lunch. And mm -hmm. this is what, what I've been doing. I'm not, haven't been much more involved until recently than you have. You know, this organization, you know, it, uh, it saved your life. And mm -hmm. you look these and without any you know, thing, why? Just an enormously generous kind of a, wow. of a contribution. But it's, I mean, these things, these are long term you know, processes. And it's the, one of the things that I, when I headed up the development activity at the uh, business school, it was that the alumni clubs, the ongoing activities are absolutely as important as the major given officers because they're hoping to build understanding, commitment. The reports that go out from the school on what they're doing, they inspire different donors in different ways in terms of seeing, you know, what you're, what you're, what you're going on. Absolutely. And Warren, what's your take on fundraising training or a coaching session for the board of trustees? Is that a good idea, a bad idea? Or yeah. if, and if it, if it works at all, what have you seen work? Well, I think the basic thing is it, it, it basically it raises the awareness of mm -hmm. what uh, you know needs to to be done, and that that's 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 really important. And uh, the question is, the governance committee, their job is to basically assemble the people. It is the job of the board chair and the head of the development committee, you know, to be able to stimulate a series of activities that are going forward. And I can, an organization that I was you know, working with you know, recently, they had ranged essentially nothing on development or an education institution. They were gained nothing uh, other than a modest sized you know, annual fund you know, for 30 years. And the different group of board members you know, had been recruited and with no thought of a fund rate where we would get the money from, a big building project was uh, you know, brought forward. And sort of looked at it and got excited. And you know, you know, one of the board members you know, said, you know, I just don't see you know, why we can't do this now. It's <laughs> school. And, and I listened very carefully because I knew something about that board member's individual capacity. And that point around, I said, you know, maybe we could do this. Would you like to put a challenge gift? To cut this story short, that we were able to, in three weeks, and put a buying panic inside the board. You raised $6 million, you know, out of nowhere. Wow. Went right out to the parents, raised another $6 million, and basically put the project on. This went on to raise $35 million over five years. Mm. But it, was, it was a question of, of priming the pump, getting the right people in the room, and then you kind of lit a spark. And because the project made sense, it was absolutely aligned you know, on the mission, it, 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 it took off. And it's one of those, it's one, you, you don't have so many of them, but those, those are the, the magical moments that basically make fundraising worthwhile, where suddenly you're able to secure the delivery of the mission, you know, for another decade forward. Well, that, is, that is a great story. And it is wonderful to see that combustion and that energy at the start. Sometimes things just lumber along, but when you get that spark, as you said, 
and it takes off. It's incredible how much you can raise in such a short period of time. Yeah. And that intensity is just a thing to behold. Well, in the other parts of the book, you really start talking about all the different campaign aspects and campaign functions of a nonprofit. Let's start touch on a few. And why don't we start with the annual fund? How does the annual fund fit into the overall fundraising effort of an organization? And what are some of the more effective practices that you've observed, Warren? The annual fund is, it, it tends to be the core ongoing you know, activity. It's where you begin to work to bring your know, new donors you know, into the organization. You move them forward uh, you know, step by step. That, I've to, the, that the annual funds that I've been doing is it's always looking to try and get new people. I look very carefully you know, for people inside the donor base who are giving, maybe giving signaling gifts, that there are people who want to be involved more. And you can suddenly see a number is bigger than you expect. You begin to get that person involved mm. onto the development committee and you, and, and, and you move them you know, forward. That it requires you know, a great deal of detail as you build you know, sort of year after after year. So it's for some organizations, it's just dominant. The uh, church that I'm a member of that that we run ninety ninety percent of our annual expenditures are secured by the annual fund. You know, so each year that is an extremely important you know kind of activity, and it requires just very detailed micromanagement to get the right people on the annual committee soliciting effort, and then to be tracking through you know, each particular you know, step. So that an annual fund, it's basically the core ongoing activity that keeps the thing going. Yeah. Uh, within that, of course, then there, 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 are several, there, there are several other things. The, the first is this is the basis for the resources that will come for a capital campaign. And if the annual fund basically can keep you moving, that it's new programs, new buildings, these require the, you know, special, you know, one-time efforts. And I only, unfortunately, it used to be that a capital campaign was seen as a one-off, you know, activity. In fact, in the world of 2022, why the end of one capital campaign is sort of the beginning of the planning for the next one. But Absolutely. They're, they're, they never take the break. You know, you get a month off and then you're back at it. <laughs> and there's sort of an inexhaustible, you know, need, you know, you know for these funds. And so that I'm looking to begin to get people who uh, I think have the capacity, get them involved, you know, to making your, your signature, your, your kinds of gifts. And then a third kind of, of, of camp, campaign, and that's the one that aims at my age bracket. That's plan giving. Mm -hmm. And that they, that this is an enormously important time for plan giving that we're in the midst of this huge intergenerational transfer of wealth you know moving you know from my generation down to the children so forth behind us our job as nonprofit leaders is to understand that the tax law allows us to do remarkable things to build nonprofit organizations and maybe our kids could do just a little, little less and maybe they'd work harder and do their own things. And so, for example, at, at, at Harvard, I never heard of plan giving until my uh, 50th reunion. Mm -hmm. And for the 50th reunion, you know, that is all 
that we talked about. The notion, and the reason for that, of course, is that charitable remainder trusts, annuities, and so forth, that people like myself, we know we're going to live forever. And these look like <laughs> terrific kinds of details. The plan giving officer knows, in fact, the actual tables say the end is much closer than <laughs> and so, it appears. And, yes. and so in that happy space, you can do a, a, a great deal. And so that I've been working very hard with two organizations to just really build up you know, the, the plan giving. And that telling one of the heads of it, to be perfectly honest, you aren't going to get much better personally during your time uh, of what I'm doing. But in fact, I've laid the base for the financial success of your successor and your successor's you know, successor. And so that, of course, and this is one of the things that makes fundraising so important, is you always need to have the long-term view. I need money today, but people's their commitment to the mission, where they are in their personal lives, they may not be quite ready to make the commitment, but over time you keep the dialogue going, they understand the mission, and you're able to pick them up later on in the process. So that it's sort of a you know, Japanese you know, type where the basic notion is that no means maybe, maybe means yes. And, yes, yes, yes. And, and you sort of, just, you need to keep the dialogue moving. Well, you know, I think that is uh, really the sign of a great leader of a nonprofit organization, that they understand that they're just there for a little period of time and that, that they are just a part of the history of this institution. And it's those leaders that can look at the history of the institution and the finite role they play within that history that really do look at plan giving, realize that this is, this is just, I'm just here for this moment. This has many, many years to come. Another thing that we haven't touched on yet, and you write in the book, are about donor advised funds. Now, they have really taken off, but I do know, Warren, nonprofits sometimes are a little perplexed about how do I ever get access to this fast growing pool of wealth. Tell us a little bit about what a donor advised fund was and maybe some advice for nonprofits in that regard. Well, the donor advised fund is basically, it, it allows you to make a contribution when you're ready to the donor fund for charitable purposes. And then it can be dispersed at times that you th that you want. So it basically puts the, it breaks the two activities apart and that we've been working very hard you know to get people you know to worry to do it that way the nice thing about it is that the donor advised funds highly successful professional money managers mm. so you know the money is being managed you're able to take your tax deductions when you want it and then you're able to then at a different time frame be able to put the money out into the charities of of, of, of your choice let me ask you this how does an organization manage multiple ass. So here I am, let's say I'm a development manager and you're my donor. Okay. Thank you, Warren, by the way, we, you know, I'm asking you to give it the annual fund. Now we have a capital campaign going on at the same time. And by the way, I hope you can buy a table to our gala come October. How does the CEO, the development team, much less a trustee, sort all of that out? The answer is with difficulty that it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you need to understand, and of course, it, this is a particularly good time. I mean, that the combination of the financial markets have been very good 
yeah. in the last three years. And so that I, you know, when the, the pandemic started, I remember I was sitting on a school board and we said, this is going to be a big problem. And we immediately postponed, you know, two capital projects, began to think about what the things are we should trim. And within a month, you know, we suddenly said, we've got this wrong. That in fact, as this problem is going on, there's a flight to quality. You know, mm -hmm. people are coming, you know, to us and we actually wound up reinstalling both capital projects. Enrollment jumped by 25, you know, percent for a variety of you know things. Now, what this means, coming back to your to your question, is that you know, when I'm getting you to come onto a board, I'm going to be the answer is basically is that I'm hoping that you're going to be able to, you know, support the annual fund and that I have some feeling of your, your linkage you know, to the organization. Mm -hmm. That then as a board member, I'm going to be putting you through committees and so forth. So you begin to see what the future and what the future capital campaigns are. And you begin to talk about, you know, that. And you talk about it in a broad way because different people are turned on by very different things. Some are mm -hmm. turned on by bricks and mortar. Some like their names on the wall. Others like programs. Some people want to be in the deep background, but can be very you know, helpful. And then from time to time, as you point out, that we have these special fundraising events and that you need to know on the board that yes, we are expecting you to contribute by the, to the annual fund. And of course, of that the capital campaign is coming. And then we have these wonderful celebratory events. And we certainly hope that you'll be able to buy uh, a table at, at, at one of them and that you don't, you can invite the people you want to the table, but we hope that you will in fact be doing it with the view of helping these people be introduced to the organization and and starting them, you know, through the process. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about this is that when you're uh, on a board and you're development focused, that is a job that is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, year after year. You never know. You never know when the moment comes. I remember heading up a, a campaign for a religious organization and that it was a cold <laughs> January day I came out of the Boston Common garage, temperature was about four degrees, the wind was blowing flat across the ground. And I ran into uh, one of my, my f former students here. I said, what are you doing? So I'm you know, on my way off to, to meet with you know, Senator Brown. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm off to meet with the Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Massachusetts. This guy said, that's interesting, you know, I'm an Episcopalian. <laughs> and right at that moment, I stopped. The temperature in my mind rose to 70 degrees. <laughs> the snowflake was out of rain. And he said, you know, you know, tell me more. And the answer was, well, yes. Some said, I used to be a um, senior warden of our church, you know, you know, down south. I said, well, uh, that's, of course, you can't be in that church anymore. I said, no. I said, I'm now up going to a church here. And I said, what one? He gave the name of the town. I said, that was interesting. And then we departed. And he wanted his direction. I went to my meeting. And I got to my development meeting with the bishop. I said, this is what his development is all about. Yeah, yeah. And that three weeks later, my friend was invited in to have lunch with the bishop. 
There you go. And that was a very good thing. And then the bishop and once indicated understood that he, he did some teaching and wondered if he could see him teach. And when and he watched him teach, he never the bishop never wanted to see me teach. And <laughs> that then you know, went on and that after that there was a small pro bono consulting assignment and that twenty people showed up to hear the results of it. And all of that came to a very happy half million dollar gift. Very and, nice. But you great but, story. But you just never know. That's mm -hmm. why you have to think about it, you know, all all the time. I can tell you that when the campaign was over, it was a great sign to me. I could go back to church coffee hour. For years, as I came in the coffee hour, people would be inciting out the door the other way. <laughs> That's very funny. Well, let me let me um look at that from a different perspective. Aside from the fact that you need to have your antennae up 24-7, and I certainly agree with that when it comes to development, you know, you also mentioned in the book, and I've observed it myself, that there are so many nonprofit CEOs that are spending 50% or more than 50% of their time in raising money. Is that healthy? Is that, is, is that, is there a better way to get this done? Is there a better way where philanthropy could be more effective that they're not spending so much time doing that? Or do you think that that in some ways is a, a great ambassadorial role for uh, CEOs? I, I think as a, I, I, I personally, you know, think it's a terrible, un, but unfortunately necessary, you know, way, you know, to go mm -hmm. about doing it. It's one of the reasons why, for example, the university presidents, those are tough, tough jobs. I was yeah. just reading the morning paper today, and there are a whole group of them in uh, New England that are stepping down after 10 or 11 years of really hard work. And yeah. the reason you know, for it is you have all the problems of running the organization, but almost every one of them needs new programs, needs new facilities, and that the sad fact is that for, for major donors, listen, they expect to hear from the chief executive you know, officer and that is his time over a period of, of, of time. So I don't think it's healthy, but I don't easily know how to work a way around it. And that number 50% when I wrote my last book, Joining a Nonprofit Board, why one of my CEO friends who was on the faculty school, I asked him to read the draft. And he said, I, he, he, I gave it to him. He said, very interesting one. I said, but you've got one thing you're absolutely wrong. I said, what's that? I said, give your book says, well, 25% of your time is spent you know, raising money. Uh, he said, it took 50% of my time. I said, I didn't say 25%. And what he did, he found a typo in the draft. <laughs> so, I mean, they're, they're, it just, the, 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 the head of Citizen Year who was in there wrote the foreword to my book. I mean, she was very clear, former student of mine, that she spends at least her that amount of time. And only this year for the first time is she going to be able to spend less because right. she was fortunate that she got one of Jeff Bezos' wife's, you know, gifts. Yeah, Mackenzie Scott. Mackenzie Scott. Five million dollar gift just you know transforms, but I know quickly enough the scale of her activity is going to grow, and she will be continuing you know, you know to worry about it. Yeah, she's a great person. I've had Abby Fallick on the show several times, and I've really enjoyed her. And I've been out to visit her offices. So she was got... a very challenging person in the classroom. <laughs> hey, you know, you mentioned the pandemic before. So, what do you think? has occurred during the pandemic that might change the way fundraising is done? I mean, something that might stick well beyond this period that we've been living through. 
One thing that is helpful is that we've turned out to be able to do much more personal contact over Zoom. Mm. And that's, that, that, that's really important because my development staff used to have to spend so much time on the road, driving, traveling, and so forth. And those touches were very important. You can now, I think you're going to be able to cut two thirds of that out. You need the con, but you'll be able to do a much better job of maintaining the contact, talking about things, describing what's going on. You'll know, through that. So I, I think it's going to be very much of a hybrid you know, way that we're moving on. The second thing that coming through this time is I think we people have been able to increase their expectations in terms of what they what what they can can do. And I think that as long as the economy remains healthy, this is a wonderful period, you know, for capital campaigns. That you know, one of the organizations that I'm involved with, that uh, uh, we just are having our, our first annual something, and that the original budget for the gala hoped to raise, you know, four hundred thousand dollars. This is an organization everybody knows the name of. We just finished off. It's going to take place in three weeks, and we've raised a million. <laughs> and it's on the environment you get out if the cause is worthwhile you you know people are are willing you know, to make a contribution i think that the that the, so i think the the way of soliciting is going to change i think the type of outreach is going to change but you still need print you know mm. i know that people say well why do you put together these annual reports and printing. Why, why don't you just have this stuff up on the web? Yeah. So why? Tell us why. I'll tell you why. It's because they're people like myself. <laughs> and I'll take an organization, you know, and I like to sit down and sort of see, you know, I'm watching the Olympics on one hand. I'm sort of flipping through and saying, you know, here are the, the donors. One of the organizations I'm on, you know, when my uh, daughter was involved, and I flicked through, and she, she, she supported it, which for classmates, that in the process of thinking about it, says, you know, they need to be doing this. That, mm -hmm. and it's not just the not the numbers; it's it's the reflection, and you think about who was involved, and it it basically goes things forward. So, I don't think that the print media, in fact, that there was a big move ten years ago to get rid of the print. And what I'm seeing is that most of the people are now in the process of bringing it back because you need, you know, both kind, you know, kinds of things. Yeah. You know, essentially what I think sometimes you need is you need what is not being done as much. So back in the day, you know, we get our mailbox would be stuffed and we get an email occasionally. Now my email box is stuffed. And yeah. when I get something paper in the mailbox, I'm more ten, I tend more to read it because I don't get that much. So you kind of go contrarian to say, well, this is different. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, and I never look at half my emails anymore because you can't. There's a billion of them. So it is. That's what the delete button is for. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. But I, I do like what you said about virtual solicitation. You know, it was one of the myths that we always had about major gift fundraising, that it had to be done person to person, face to face, and anything else less than that would be a diss. But uh, I saw a survey that CCS put out the other day, and many people felt that virtual solicitations were actually more effective than in-person. They're tighter, you have greater focus, and they about 72% of them, I think, say they worked at least as well, if not better. So, so it is interesting. And along with the virtual gala you were talking about, gala, somebody said to me a couple of weeks ago that once the San Francisco Ballet's gala gets a gift from Atlanta, 
there is no going back. Yeah, <laughs> you know I mean? that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, finally, Warren, you have worked with so many effective development committee uh, trustees over the years, and you cite a number of them in the book. Share with us a story or two that helps crystallize some of the key points that you've made in this book. I, there, there, there are two people that I mentioned in the book that are both Harvard Business School graduates, and they are they are icons. And one of them, the first one I'll mention is you know, Steve Schwarzman. You know, Steve has been going on to have a, he built Blackstone, remarkable organization. He's also a philanthropic person that you read his book and you understand how he had to ask, 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 and ask. That the project that I looked at him was most closely for was a Tsinghua University, where he created Schwarzman College, which is mm -hmm. a little scholar you know, type of thing to the leading university in China, that he made a lead gift of $100 million to that. And then he personally solicited the next $500 million. And as he said, it was just tough because I asked and I asked and I asked and there were a lot of no's and he just kept going and pushing his way through it. That I remember you know, working you know, with Hank Paulson, who was former Secretary of the Treasury and head of right. Goldman Sachs and he mm -hmm. was head of an advisory board. And he said, I said, Warren, said, the thing that I most dislike in this is having to ask people you know, for money because it doesn't come naturally to me which struck me as a very unusual thing for a chairman of Goldman Sachs to be saying. And secondly, if they say yes, they're going to probably want me to contribute to their thing. <laughs> yeah. and I consider these our first team. And so if the first team people are dealing with the issues we're talking about, you know, in the book, it's normal. And so you've got excellent company. And the real issue is to be able to sort of overcome inhibitions. Don't think about it as begging, but just thinking as mobilizing support for a cause bigger than you can do by yourself, but one is really changing society. And it's interesting because this is where business people are very good. It's, it's interesting that the, the largest organization at the Harvard Business School is the Social Enterprise Organization. Right, I know that. 80% of our alumni are involved in social enterprise. A third of them serve on boards. What does the largest 50 hospitals, museums, and universities have in common? Every last one of them has one or more Harvard Business School alums on it. So that in reaching this, it's really important that you get the mind turned in the right way. People can be really enormously philanthropic and help you build your organization forward. And that's really oh, what I try to get is that when I walk away from a for-profit board meeting, I have a good time. I've been challenged. Mm -hmm. When I come away from a development operation or a nonprofit, it's a different one. I don't say it's quite, it's almost a spiritual one. You're sort of actually helping, you know, society down the field in some important ways. I think that's why our alumni have voted and your daughter have voted so much, you know, to spend time in that. Yeah, yeah. And I love what you say about just asking, asking, and asking. And I think something that probably Steve and others have found out, it is so hard to get a no, but every other no becomes easier. 
you begin to normalize it. And you get over you it. it. You, just, you know what I mean? It's like, ah, oh, no, no. You know what I mean? But <laughs> you get in there. Yeah. You get in there. It's like a football player taking that first hit. It hurts. But after that, okay, I'm in that's, the game. That's, you know it's I mean? a contact sport and you get used to it. <laughs> Absolutely. The title of the book, again, is Effective Fundraising, The Trustees Roll and Beyond. And it is the perfect companion book to Warren's previous effort, Joining a Nonprofit Board, What You Need to Know. Thanks, Warren, for being here today. It was just a pleasure to have you on the show. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you.